Great to have everyone here live and those who are watching live stream. And we are thankful that we can meet together as Vero Bible Fellowship on a Thursday evening and really honor God by His Word and the study of His Word. And it is a form of worship. I'm excited for our, our worship ministry, the, the, the folks, the volunteers uh, of our worship ministry, many of them are going to the SING conference, which is uh, put out by Keith and Kristen Getty every, every year. And they're, they're just uh, wonderful folks who focus on, uh, uh, they believe that everything in the worship should point to the Word of God. So singing should point us towards God in, in the teaching of the Word. And uh, they, they're writing modern hymns, and we sing a lot of those. A lot of our songs are written by modern hymn, hymn writers. And uh, so that, that's coming up in September. They'll be going up to Nashville, Tennessee, and attending that conference. Great preaching. Uh, I'm hoping to go, but our daughter Morgan, is, is her due date is September 19th. And uh, the conference is right about that time, so... Uh, I'm either praying for a baby to come a little early so I can see the baby before I leave or, or well, I don't wish on her for it to, to, to go long. So we'll see. But uh, uh, I can't wait to get up there and hear some good preaching and worship the Lord. Uh, Rini and I, obviously you guys know, we were gone for the last week. We left on Sunday evening and came back on Sunday evening, this past Sunday. Got home about uh, 1.30 didn't get into bed till about 2.30 in the morning. And, uh, but we came back and no COVID, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for that. And had a wonderful time with our daughter Lauren and her husband Graham and their four children. And she has one more on the way. And uh, that baby will be here in December. So, so uh, we had just the best time. And these little kids, each one of them, you know, you know this to be true, all of your children and your grandchildren, each one's unique. No two are exactly alike. Well, I guess that's not true. You could, you could actually have twins that are, but, but uh, each one of these are, we just have the best time and they are full of energy. So all day I heard pop, pop, pop. And the youngest is little Daniel and he's about, about a year old. And so I'm, every time I'd come out in the room, he's like this. So I'd hold him and he was like my wart that I developed for the week. I just carried a wart right here. And, uh, but, but what such fun, such fun. Somebody asked me, how do you, you know, going to Chicago is not safe, Pastor Greg. You, and I said, we're not in Chicago. We're about 25, 30 miles out of Chicago in Wheaton, which is a beautiful community. And, uh, of course, Wheaton University or Wheaton College is right there. And so we, we just, uh, just really enjoyed ourselves. The preaching here, the teaching that Scott gave last Thursday night, I listened to that, uh, I think, Tuesday morning early. And what a blessing to me, uh, the, what Scott did for us in, in 2 Samuel. And then, of course, uh, on Sunday, what a tremendous word that Pastor Brenton brought. My goodness. And uh, wow, just blessed. We sat there and watched it Sunday morning. So I wasn't with you physically, but I was with you in spirit. We were right there tuned in. And so... Just thankful that in our church we have such gifted teachers of the, of the Word and men who love the Lord and they, they're committed to the Lord and they desire to, to teach the Word of God. And our eldership is just a blessing. 
Um, we have our annual business meeting coming up. It'll be right around the last week of, of uh, September. So it's just around the corner. And we've been praying through all summer about if God is raising up any more elders. And we are talking to someone that we sense all in unanimity that God would, would potentially raise up. And we've asked that person to pray about it. And they are praying about it. And I'm going to meet with them actually Monday. And uh, so there might be a name uh, that we'll be presenting to you uh, for consideration for eldership. The congregation doesn't, we don't do an election, but we have an affirmation. The elders are the ones who appoint elders, but there's an affirmation of the congregation to that. And we actually present the name and then give you, I think, a week or two weeks, according to the bylaws, I can't remember, where you can, if you have information about them that we need to be aware of, so that we can continue to make sure that, you know, it's someone that God has raised up. And the last thing we want is for eldership to become an election, to become a popularity thing. It is a spiritual calling. And what those elders do on a weekly basis in terms of prayer and in terms of ministry with people, uh, you should be very proud and thankful that we have elders. And uh, so uh, I sure am. Um, Tonight we'll be in 2 Samuel chapters 3 and 4, so we'll pick up where, where Scott left off last week, and uh, I guess before we, we begin, we should pray. Uh, there are so many people in our fellowship that are facing trial. I was, even on the way to church tonight, I, I was calling uh, on Doris Newman. Uh, Doris had uh, surgery last week, and so um, just praying that God would bring her through that. So many of our folks are facing either physical illness or facing other types of, of trials and tests in their life. And uh, so we have much to pray for. And we're also, we have much to be thankful for, don't we? No matter what we're facing, we should still be thankful. We should still be thankful. Not because somebody else has it worse. Uh, that's not at all, I think, the, the point of our thankfulness. Our thankfulness is that the Lord would use uh, illness would use uh, whatever we're facing to grow us. And we're thankful that He cares about us even when we're hurting, even when we're going through a difficult time. And not just care about us, but he, He's still wanting to, to minister to us and grow us and teach us. So I'm very thankful for that. Lord, tonight as we are about to open the Word of God, our minds go to those who uh, are struggling right now or suffering, uh, those who have come through difficulty and uh, are still maybe in that cloud, in that storm. And we pray that, God, you would meet people where they are. We know that uh, there seems to be a resurgence of COVID. And uh, we, we just pray for people that they would be protected from that. And those who might have contracted COVID would be uh, ministered to first and foremost by you and they would be comforted by you, encouraged by you, strengthened by your word, but they would also receive ministry from us, that we would care for them. It was a blessing to be able to say in my voice message to Doris tonight that uh, if you need food, let us know. We, as a body, will be glad to, to help you. And it's just a blessing to know that, that, that this is really a fellowship. We are a fellowship. And when some rejoice, we rejoice with them. And when others are going through trial or difficulty or even maybe they're facing a grieving, a sorrow, we are able to join them in that. 
And that's what it means to belong to the family of God. So tonight, we just lift them to you. We pray that your blessings would be upon them, that your hand would be upon them, that you would protect, but you would also heal. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And Lord, tonight as we study, may the word of God again come alive. May we be encouraged. May we be challenged. May we be corrected. Whatever we need, Lord, we know the word by the Holy Spirit will deliver. And so keep our hearts open, Lord. May, may we be reminded that we only grow to the understanding that we know. And we want to know more so that we can continue to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Uh, we are picking up, I, I titled tonight, A Good Old Fashioned Power Grab. And that's what we're seeing here, A Good Old Fashioned Power Grab. Uh, there was, verse 1 says, there was a long war. We're in chapter 3, 2 Samuel, chapter 3, verse, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So the, what we want to say out of that, and I think Scott did a great job laying it out for us, there obviously with Saul having, been, having served as king for 40 years and David being on the run for much of that <laughs> from Saul, um, it developed some real, real uh, dissension. Uh, not so much on David's part towards Saul, but certainly uh, on the, D David's men, towards Saul's men. And, and most of Israel had turned against David. Israel, when I say Israel, I'm speaking of the, the north of Judah. I think, obviously, we haven't come to the division where it's a divided kingdom yet. That'll happen. But what we're seeing is the Judah, which would be the area of Jerusalem and south of Jerusalem, uh, those folks were different than the people north of Jerusalem. Okay? Uh, north would be all the way up into the uh, Galileans on the Sea of Galilee. They saw things much differently. If I could tell you this, that in the time that Jesus was living on the earth and even came to Jerusalem for his final triumphal entry, and they had the Passover, Jesus at that time experienced a separation between the northern Israel and the southern Judah. Uh, even when they went to the temple, all Jews, they came from all over, and they would go to temple to offer sacrifice. And, uh, but but the, the, the priest had set it up so that the... The northern kingdom, the Galileans, would have their sacrifice by the priest the day before the, Ju the Judeans. They were not all offering sacrifice. Part of that was because you have this influx of a million and a half, two million Jews that come for Passover. And there's no way to... Can you imagine... The, the number of the slaughter of the animals for that many people to offer Passover meal. And so part of the reason was divide them out. The other part was because they just didn't get along. So here they are coming to offer sacrifice to God, but they don't get along. Sounds like modern day church. <laughs> well, we have two services and I'm thankful because I can't go to that early service where that guy comes, you know. <laughs> 
Really, I mean, that's, that was happening then and it's happening now. So um, there's this division, and he speaks of it right out of the gate. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Obviously, Saul has, has, is now gone. He's dead. So obviously, his house is weaker. Verse 2, and sons were born to David at Hebron. If you go back, you'll remember in the last chapter that God told David, he asked, where should we go from here? Uh, obviously, Saul died. He was killed. Jonathan was killed. And David's like, Lord, what do I do now? And he said, go to Hebron. Go to Hebron. Which, by the way, Hebron was a city of refuge set up in the Old Testament by the prophets. It's a city of refuge. So God's sending David, who is really despised by the, the Jews in the north, probably accepted by the Jews in Judea because they saw what he was doing uh, even when he was with the king of Gath going behind the scenes and killing off uh, the Philistines. And so they appreciated him. But he goes to Hebron, a place of refuge. That's where God sends him. And that's where he is when this is given. And his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, uh, who would not be a Jew. Okay, And his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal, of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Maka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. These are not; these, it's, these are all the wives. David had what five, six wives, and he had six sons from all those wives. Okay, one fourth, uh, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, the fifth Shephatiah or Tia, the son of Abital, and the sixth. Ethrium of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So, David, Saul is dead. David's no longer on the run, so David settles down. Now, he's had these wives, many of them, for quite a while. Some of them he's picked up, but now he settles down. Now I'm going to have kids. I'm going to have a family. Now, during David's, uh, David's seven years uh, in Hebron, his six different wives gave birth to six sons. And this shows that David went against God's command, which said that Israel's king should not multiply wives to himself. It was a command of God. Back when he first, when Israel said, we want a king to be like all the other nations. Okay, I'll give you a king, but here are the rules for the king and for you. And he left, laid it out. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Write it down. Deuteronomy 17, 17. And he shall not acquire, speaking of kings, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So David was wrong, folks, to have more than one wife. His many wives went against God's command, but also it went against God's heart for marriage. God is the one and this, in this day that we live, oh, how I wish that young people could be told the whole truth. They are not told the truth. Therefore, they don't value marriage as sacred, as an institution that has been given by God, which it has. They see it as a man-made social dynamic, and we can either choose to be part of it or not. It doesn't really matter. 
And how we live in marriage doesn't really matter. Some people get married with the full intention of still having mistresses and others on the side. And that's just the way it is. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, oh, hello, <laughs> it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father, I'm sorry, yeah, every, this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay? That's in Genesis. So God establishes in the very beginning, after the creation of man, that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave. That word in the Hebrew literally means to attach, to, to be so, so attached that you can't pull it apart. I've used an example of that would be like a piece of plywood. What is plywood? It's very thin pieces, sheets of wood. Uh, manuf it's manufactured. They take wood and put it together. And they, they then take these sheets and they glue them. They adhere to one another. Have you ever tried to pull those pieces apart on a piece of plywood on the edge? You can't do it, okay? That's what marriage was intended by God, to be something that no man could pull apart, okay? Now, what was the purpose of marriage? The purpose was to be a picture of the relationship that Jesus Christ has uh, with God the Father. The church was the bride of Christ, Christ being the groom, it's a picture for us and for the world. But the, they don't have a clue what the picture is supposed to be because it's become so many other things than what it was intended by God. In uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, uh, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Who created man? God. From the beginning, from the very beginning, and not just from the fall, before the fall, he made them male and female. There is no third gender description, designation. What we're seeing today, listen, is an abomination to God. Amen. And pastors and churches that accept that because the the, the world's system of belief has fed them that, and they've accepted it. They have, that shows you how far they've drifted from God. And listen to this. And, and Jesus said, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father. Now he's quoting Genesis. Jesus in the New Testament is giving full credence to what was said in Genesis. So anybody says, well, I, you know, Genesis, I'm not sure about that. I, you know, I like the New Testament I believe in, but I'm not sure about Genesis. Jesus believed it. Okay? And he said that a man would leave his father and mother and hold fast. There it is, a different way to say Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Who, who joined marriage? Let no man separate. Now, it was common for a king to have many wives. Hence, and when I say kings, I mean kings of other nations. That was common. Uh, that's why God gives this command for Israel's king not to have many wives. Don't be like them. Uh, the strength of a kingdom, to, to a king in that day, the strength of your kingdom was, was 
found in how many wives you had. It, it spoke of power. It spoke of dominance. Look at my kingdom. Look at my family. Look at and and uh, status. They saw that as a status thing. God says, your power doesn't come from you and the decisions you make. Your power comes from me. Status, you don't have an identity apart from me. That's why you don't need to follow the world's uh, ways and have multiple wives. Now, it was common for a king uh, like David to have many troubles. You know why? Because he had many wives. Now, before ladies, you get upset, the hair on the back of that neck starting to stand up. I didn't say that a wife was a problem to him. I said wives, just like more than one husband would be a problem for a, woman, for a wife. Amen? Women, you can't even handle the one you got. What are you doing with another one? You know? Well, the same's true for men with women. And, uh, and, and let me just tell you, boy, did David have troubles because he stepped out of God's will for him and took on more than one wife. The consequences are clear, and we see them. I just read them to you. You say, I didn't see a consequence. He just had six sons. What's the consequence? Okay, let me give it to you. Thanks for asking. I appreciate that. Here it is. Uh, Amnon, his son Amnon, raped his half-sister and was murdered by his half-brother. Okay? Uh, Chiliab also known as Daniel in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Apparently, he died before he could make a mess of his life. So, Scripture doesn't record anything about him. Okay, Nothing is said to him. He was born to David through Abigail, the widow of Nabal. Uh, Absalom, which means, his name means, my divine father is peace. Well, he was murdered, or he murdered his half-brother and led a civil war against his father, who, by the way, was his king. Okay? Adonijah. He tried to seize the throne from his father and David's appointed successor, who was his brother, Solomon. Then he tried to take one of David's concubines, and he was executed because of his arrogance to take one of his father's concubines. Remember that, because we're going to come back to that in just a few moments in, our, in, our, in this chapter. Uh then we can assume that Sheftiah and Ethrium, uh, Shephatiah means the Lord judges. Boy, does he ever. And Ethrium means my divine father of dew, D-E-W. Both died young and, were, uh, and uh, were ungodly and unworthy men. You say, how do you know that? Because nothing's even mentioned of them. There's only one other place in Chronicles that mentions them, and it's just simply a generic, these are sons of David, period. Nothing at all about them. Uh, that's why I titled this teaching, A Good Old-Fashioned Power Grab. David, he sowed the wind, and he reaped the whirlwind. He did. Uh, Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were uh, to yield, strangers would devour it, because David sowed the wind and he reaped the whirlwind. 
There's something about obeying God in marriage and in parenting. Now, no guarantees that your marriage is going to be a great marriage because it takes two people to tango, right? No guarantee that your children will be godly children. They have a mind of their own, and God gives them the right to make choices, but they have to live with the consequences of their choices. A good parent will let them live with the consequence of their choice. Won't bail them out time and time again. That's called dysfunction. That's unhealthy. Um, so let's just keep looking here. I want to show you something else. Uh, while there was war between, look at verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Interesting. Who was Abner from last week? He was the commander of Saul's army. Saul is now gone. So what does Abner do? A power grab. Okay? Verse 7, Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? So Ishbosheth was a son or a grandson, I can't remember now, of Saul. Was he a grandson? Mephibosheth was. Yes, I know. See, that's what causes me the confusion. But anyway, I think it was, I think Ishbosheth was one of his sons from a concubine. And so now he's confronting the commander of his father's uh, army because he's actually taken for himself a concubine of the late king which we just learned is worthy of capital punishment. Even though she's a concubine, you treat her like a wife in the Scripture that way. And so, so he confronts him. And uh, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Well, uh, if you understand, Ishbosheth was never supposed to be the next king. When Saul dies, his kids are wanting to take over. They want to take the kingdom. They want to keep it within the family. We all know that God said David would be the next king. And guess what? They knew it as well. Uh, but, they, but they, you know, it's a power grab. It's an empty vacancy at the top. Somebody's got to fill it. Might as well be me. And so now what you've got is you've got Abner, the commander, he doesn't, listen now, he doesn't want to sit on the throne. He wants to pick a weak person out of the family of Saul to sit on the throne that he can manipulate. So Ishbosheth is a pawn for Abner. But now the pawn has actually confronted Abner. What are you doing taking one of my father's concubines? And, and this is a big deal. Uh, to this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. Uh, uh, we're talking about Saul's concubine here. It's a little different than just a woman, okay? Uh, 
He took Rizpah, the concubine of Saul. Abner was clearly making a statement to the people that he had the power of the former king. When you take the king's concubine, that's what you're saying. He continues, verse 9. God do so to Abner, so he's speaking of himself. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David. Whoa. What the Lord has sworn to him. So now he's been found out that he's trying to take over the throne. Not, not, not in person, but through Ishbosheth. But that fell through. That plan didn't work. So now all of a sudden, he's going to come alongside David. He's going to align with David. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. I'm going to go support. You don't want me? I'll go to David. I'll support him. He'll get everything because the people in Israel will follow what I say. But listen to what he said. I, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, he knew, even when he went after the power grab, even when he set up Ishbosheth, he knew David was supposed to be the king. So Abner has gone full tilt here, okay? Uh, and verse 11, and Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. That tells you the power that this man had. Again, it's likely that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul by taking Saul's concubine. This would express his power. It would express his dominance over Ishbosheth. He wanted people to know he might be the, he might be the face, but I'm the power behind it. It's also probable that the reason Ishbosheth confronts Abner over this matter isn't because he's trying to put him back in his place as the commander, but he's actually removing him completely. And, and I think Abner knew it, and so that's why Abner, in the moment, quickly makes a decision. Well, I'll just go support David. Okay? So when Abner said, verse 9, God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Listen, we see that he knew all along that David was supposed to be king. He's... He's, he's now coming clean. Let me tell you, Abner is a great example of someone who knows something to be true, but they choose to ignore it and, and go a different direction. He knew what the truth was, but he lived as if it wasn't true. Okay? Do you know anybody like that? Okay, let me just get a little more personal. When was the last time you were like that? We're all guilty to know things, not do anything about it, because if I let it play out, it'll play out to my favor. It's the same thing as actually setting up something that you know is wrong. This is touchy to me. You go along with some, something that you know is handled wrongly or isn't true simply because the end result of this sordid situation, whatever it might be, will ultimately deliver the selfish desire or benefit that you subversively sought to begin with. I've, I've personally experienced that kind of pain. Underhanded, seditious, uh, even from within God's church. It's in the church. It's interesting in the New Testament, all of Paul's writings, all of Peter, James, they wrote about 
the false teachers, the false prophets in the church, not outside, in. We're not talking about a, uh, a wolf over the hilltop that's close to the camp. We're talking about sheep or wolves in sheep's clothing. They're in the camp. Um, either way you look at it, it's wrong, and Abner's guilty. Wouldn't it have been nice if Abner, knowing the truth, would have just confessed and said, you know what, I know the truth, and, and I'm sorry for what I've done, and come clean. He didn't. What did he do? He had to be found out. He had to be confronted by Ishbosheth before he said, yep, David, I knew David was, and I'm going to go support him. Trying to make himself look like he's still in the right. He's not in the right. There's nothing about what Abner did that's right. A leader should be one who takes responsibility for his actions and doesn't hide his true intentions in secret. Isn't that what we love about a president that's a true leader? They state the truth. You don't have to like it, and they know that when they state it, that half the people are going to love me and half the people are going to hate me. But they still state it. Why? Because it's true. That's leadership. The rest of it is political. Say what people want to hear to try to win their vote. Uh, I believe that the last president we had was a leader. Say what you want about his morals and this and that and whatever. I'm not looking for the president to be, the, to be a, a pastor, to be a theologian. I want him to fear God. I want him to respect life because how he feels about life is how he feels about my personal property. You know, write laws that take away my property if he doesn't, if he doesn't you know, value my life. And, uh, and all of that. But I, I'm just telling you, th this, is, this is a real problem in the church. There's no place in spiritual leadership for cowards. And that's what you are. If you're not able to be honest and be truthful and state what you really feel, you're a coward. Bottom line. And doesn't that describe what Jesus said about the scribes, which were the theologians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Jerusalem council when he confronts them? Matthew chapter 23, boy, did Jesus, whoo, he did not mince any words. I mean, he came after them. And by the way, the whole chapter, chapter 23 of Matthew, it's red print. He's fed up. He's done. He's done with them. And now he's going to warn the people and his disciples. You, disciples, you do not act in this way. These guys, this group, don't you ever act like them. To the people, wake up. See it for what it is. And he, and he said things like, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. In other words, where they follow Moses, they follow the law, you need to do it. But not the works they do. Don't follow them. Because they themselves aren't following what they're teaching. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move their, them with their, with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Boy, Jesus, this, how, do you, how do you read this and walk away saying, Jesus was just a, 
he was just so compassionate and loving. He didn't judge people like you do. Are you kidding? He spoke who they were. He, he called out the names. I mean, it's just amazing. Well, that's, that's by the way, it's not just Abner. It's also Ishbosheth. <laughs> he knew he wasn't supposed to be king. He was glad when Abner came to him and said, hey, you're the guy. You need to be the king. Oh, 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 yes. <laughs> and Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, verse 12. To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. This guy thinks he's something, doesn't he? And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, this is David, is that you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael or Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Wait a minute. This guy's coming and telling you he's going to give you all of the northern area so that all Israel comes under your, your reign. And you're telling him, I don't want to see your face till you bring another, concub another wife for me. I've already got five. I need another one. <laughs> see, not everything David did was godly. And yet God doesn't remove him. God still used him. God still used him. It's amazing. I, I love that the scripture doesn't hide the ugliness of those that God has to work with. And by the way, he has to work with me. He has to work with you. And there's ugliness. I'm just thankful that he can, by the Holy Spirit, convict me when I sin so that I can come back into a right standing. Now, it doesn't change my position. I'm saved. But it doesn't mean that I'm close to God when I'm out living in sin, right? Amen? And he said, good. Yeah, I'll make this covenant with you, but you've got to go get my the wife that Saul gave me. Verse 14, then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my, yeah, this is his son, give me my wife, um, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. He actually paid 200. He was asked, Saul told him, give me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines and you can have my daughter. He brought him 200. Why? Because he loved her. And she loved him. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband. See, Saul promised her to David, and then Saul gave her out of jealousy and out of manipulation, gave her to another man to get under David's skin. He really didn't think David would be able to go out and get a hundred foreskins. He thought he would die. It was a way to kill David. David comes back with 200. <laughs> and uh, then he says, okay, well, I'll just give her to somebody else. That'll really get under his skin. But her husband went with her. This is interesting. So here, Ishbosheth sends uh, Patil, the son of Lan, uh, sent her and her husband, Patil. Uh, but her husband went with her, or took her from Patil, weeping after her all the way to Behurim. Then Abner said to him, Go return. And he returned. See, apparently David was not done adding to his collection. He insisted. On receiving her. I think there's probably three reasons why David wanted McCall. Okay, number one, David remembered that McCall was his wife by both love and right that the king had given him. Okay, 
even though Saul meant it as a strategy to kill David. Secondly, David wanted to show that he harbored no bitterness towards Saul by allowing his daughter to live and to be in his, in his uh, house. So it, that's very plausible, okay? Uh, we know that that's true of David later when he actually goes out and finds, seeks and finds Mephibosheth, who was Saul's grandson, and brings him into the kingdom, okay? And then David wanted to give himself a greater claim to Saul's throne as a son-in-law. That is a way to win people over. If David has Saul's daughter as his wife, oh, well, now, you know, he is in line after Saul to be the king. At least it looks better, okay? But her current husband, Paltiel, was heartbroken over losing her to David. But Abner told him to get over it, <laughs> basically, to go home, get over it. And throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, Abner is seen as this really tough guy, and he really is. He's a commander of an army, okay? So he doesn't pull any punches. He could care less about the sweet little emotions and feelings that people have. He would really have a lot of fun with the cancel culture and with uh, the woke today, wouldn't he? He would have a field day with that. Verse 17, and Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, now he goes back, he's met with David's guys, and he said, hey, I'm, I'm going to hand everything over to you. Now he goes to the elders of Israel. And he says, for some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Because they knew David was supposed to be the king. And by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke to Benjamin. Uh, the, why would he go to the Benjaminites? I'll tell you why. Because that's, those are Saul's people. Saul came. He was a Benjaminite. Okay. So he goes to them, and he's talking to them. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the house, whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. They were all going to come on board with David. Uh, it's interesting that it, it was Abner who addressed the elders of Israel. He didn't address David, okay? Uh, even though David was the rightful king, he wouldn't reign over Israel until they submitted to him freely. It's interesting. David did not want this to be manipulative. David knew God gave him the throne. So David said, God will work it out. I'm not going to go out and try to weasel around and be a politician and win these people. I'm going to let God bring what he brings. And so uh, that, by the way, too, is, a, is an issue. That's a picture of how David handles this matter. That's a picture of lordship. Uh, Christ does not command you and, 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 and control you to make him Lord, right? You, you surrender to him when you're saved. And in that surrender, he becomes Lord of your life. But, it's a, but you, you surrendered. He didn't force you to surrender. You surrendered, okay? Uh, some people don't invite Jesus to be Lord, ungodly people, lost people. I don't want a Lord to lord over me because they'll, the things I'm doing, they won't agree with. They know that God is the last person they want to spend any time with or be under. Then some invite Jesus to reign over a small area like Hebron. You, know, you, can, come, you can be my Lord when I'm in Hebron. You can be my Lord when it's Sunday morning at church. Some give Jesus reign over everything. He has complete authority over their lives. Let me tell you, when you give complete authority to Christ, you are human. 
and you will sin. And not every thought you have will be pure. And But when you begin to act on those thoughts, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's a negative report about somebody, you're contributing to a negative report, God comes to you because He's your Lord and He loves you and He gives you the opportunity to repent of it and come clean and make restitution. You don't just keep doing it over and over and practice it like it, it's like it's, it's your life. It's not your life. Christ is your life now, right? And, and so I'm thankful to God for that because that doesn't mean you won't go back to it. My goodness, isn't it amazing how you can rise in the morning and give God the praise and thank you, Lord, for this day, and I want to serve you. I want to just whatever you have me to do. And I mean, by the time you get in your car and you're just driving down the street and somebody pulls out in front of you and man, I mean, you're, now you need to go back into, the, into your prayer closet and pray some more. No, because grace covers you. You don't lose your salvation because you fell short in that moment. But that doesn't mean that it's not hindering now your relationship with God, the freedom to do what's right. Because every time now when you go to do right, the Lord reminds you. But what about that? Sometimes Satan reminds you to try to put you down. He condemns you with it. Look what you did this morning. You act so holy tonight teaching, but look what you did this morning. Look how you spoke to that person. Look what, remember that thought you had? No, he doesn't know thoughts, so he can't do that. But you know what I'm talking about? We, 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 we're human, but I'm thankful for God's love. And, and he, was, he was cruel. I mean, this, this guy was Abner. He was, he was doing his thing. Showed no concern for Paltiel. Um, and by the way, uh, David had a right to her by the fact that Saul gave her to him. He just never got her. He never had her as his wife because Saul then pulled a quickie. So, so I feel bad for Paltiel, but... Uh, It, she was David's wife first. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. And then, now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So now he's, he's telling his people, let's, let's go with David. And they said, Yep, yeah, let's do it. Verse 18, Now then, bring it about. By the way, that means, in the King James, it means... Now then, do it, okay? Uh, don't just talk about it, let's do it. I think it's important. Charles Spurgeon has a wonderful sermon on this particular text. It was titled, Now Then, Do It, okay? In this sermon, he shows how the same principles of Israel's embrace of David as king apply to our relationship with Jesus. The Israelites might talk about making David king, but they would never crown him as king. And so Abner goes, do it. Stop talking about it. You've been saying forever you want David to be king, but you won't do anything to make him king. Because you really don't, you know, you're just talk. Do it. And by the way, in salvation, do it. And don't talk about it. Don't think about it without doing it. And the sooner you do it, the better you're going to be. Amen? Amen? Just get saved. Um. You never hear an evangelist preach that way, do you? 
Just get saved. Do it. <laughs> uh, now, you know, Abner is a general. He's not a Bible scholar. Uh, but he did know prophecy. And he knew that David was supposed to be king. So he's doing the right thing. He's telling his people, it's time to go to David. I wish, he had, I wish it was a case where he actually came to the, to the end of his scheming on his own, came clean, and then went and told his people, I was wrong, I told you a lie. David should be the king. Let's, 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 let's go support David. Uh, obviously, he's, he's now doing the right things, but it's because he got found out. So that always leaves the question, did, is he really sincere? Isn't that the truth? When somebody gets found out, you always later, you're like, yeah, but I don't know. You just don't know because you don't know their heart, right? But I do think the Lord says that we're to be ambassadors uh, of Christ, and we, we should offer reconciliation. And, uh, and, and in this case, David's offered Abner reconciliation. Verse 20, then Abner, when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go, will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all uh, that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. We have to take at face value that David is sincere with Abner, and Abner's being sincere with David. So there's been a change of heart. And this whole thing has come about. David's probably believing the Lord has arranged it. The Lord has brought Abner around, and now I'm going to receive the, the whole kingdom. Okay? Uh, verse 22, Just then the servants of David arrived from, with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. So who is Mo, or who is uh, who is uh, Joab. Joab is David's commander of the army. So you got the commander of Saul who was out trying to kill David all those years, and now you've got David's commander who comes into the camp. And when Joab and all the army that was with him came, he was told, uh, it was told to Joab, Abner the son of Ner uh, came to the king and he has let him go and he has gone in peace. David literally had Abner he could have taken his life. He didn't. He let him go in peace. And Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know your going out and your coming in and to know all that you are doing. So Joab accused Abner of being a double agent for Ishbosheth. And he's angry that David let Abner go without arresting him or killing him. Okay, so this is really becoming sordid here. Uh, there were several reasons why Joab wasn't thrilled about Abner being let go. One would be that he feared Abner was a deceiver, which is what the scripture says. Another is that Abner killed Joab's brother. So there are personal reasons for not wanting to let him go. Okay, uh, by the way, if you remember how Abner killed his brother, okay, remember that? Um, his brother's name was Asahel or Asahel, and it was that he was pursuing to take, uh, uh, who am I thinking of? Oh, Abner. He was pursuing Abner, and, and Abner turned and told him, you don't want to do this, but this kid could run fast. He was catching up, and he said, why don't you take one of my men and take their spoil and go back? You'll be a hero. Don't come after me. But the boy kept coming after him. 
And while he was swift of foot, he wasn't as agile and skilled in fighting. And Abner took the sword, and uh, a spear rather, and the blunt end of the spear, and ran it through him, impaled him, and he died. And this was Joab's brother. Now, Joab wants revenge. What does Joab want? I want to kill him, which is more than what Abner wanted from his brother Asahel. He wasn't wanting to kill him. He tried to give the boy an option so that he wouldn't kill him. But see, when we get something in our mind, somebody's done harm to us, it is so easy for us in the flesh to now want full retribution back on them. And oftentimes, we're asking for more than what they actually did to us. We build it up even more. Isn't that, how, isn't that interesting how the flesh works? And, uh, and that's exactly what's happening here, I believe. And then another reason why he wanted Abner uh, to not escape is the chief general of the former king, Saul Abner, had a lot of top-level military experience. I think, I think uh, in this case, Joab probably was, was threatened by Abner, making peace with David. Because what if David makes Abner the commander and moves me further down? So that's a possibility. That's plausible. Uh, interesting. Uh, Joab justified this murder. I'm doing this to defend and honor my king. Really? Uh, your brother died by this guy. There could be more to it than that. Treachery uh, knows no honor. And that's what we see happening here. Spurgeon spoke of this, C.H. Spurgeon. He said, we may even deceive ourselves into the belief that we are honoring our Lord and Master when we are all the while bringing disgrace upon our Lord's name. You think we're doing it in the name of the Lord? You're being a disgrace. Verse 28, afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I, am my kingdom, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge, so, so an ongoing you know, infection, or who is lep leprous, or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. I, because of what Joab has done to Abner, uh, I hope that something befalls his family from here forward. So it's interesting. Verse 30, so Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner. Okay, so they went out and killed him behind David's back because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of, at Gibeon. So this murder perpetrated by Joab set a bad precedent. And David went after Abner about it, or about after Joab and said, what are you doing? You know? So basically he calls him out and he says, uh, I, I can't go along with what Joab has done. My hands are clean of this. And I really believe David's hands were clean. He sent uh, Abner in peace. And Joab went behind the scenes and took his life. So what does David do? He pronounces a severe curse against Joab. But listen, but he didn't really correct Joab. He puts a curse on his family going forward, but he didn't deal directly with Joab. It's possible that David feared losing Joab as general. One commentary said this, Joab's ability to kill without remorse showed he was not a nice man, but not necessarily a bad general. So you got Abner, who's not a nice man, and you've got Joab, who's not a nice man. Both of them were 
were, I mean, battle-ready, battle-tested, tough guys. And both of them had ulterior motives apart from the king. So probably neither should serve as the commander of the king's army. That wasn't always the case for Abner under Saul, and it wasn't always the case for Joab under David. But they became, they lived out, they fleshed out their own heart's desires above the king. Verse 31, Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear, or, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. So David is showing real remorse that Abner was killed by Joab. And he tells Joab, you need to go into mourning. You need to lament the death of the man you killed. And King David followed the, the bier. Uh, they buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept over him, wept again over him. And then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and, all, and more also if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it. And that pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So they saw him mourning over Abner, and that really moved the people towards David. Okay, it endeared uh, uh, him to them. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gent gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, uh, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. May the Lord deal with Joab for what he's done. Uh, David didn't want his kingdom established by violence. He didn't want... He wanted the Lord to raise him up, right? And his own commander took matters in his own hand. That broke David's heart. It grieved him. And it also grieved David that Abner, the commander of Saul, was treated this way. Did David go after Saul when he had the opportunity? No, he did not. He still honored and respected Saul. And he also honored and respected Abner, the commander of Saul. So David didn't want his kingdom established this way. He wanted God to establish the kingdom and punish his enemies. David still believed that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Oh, how if we would just believe that. There's something beautiful and powerful that when you're harmed, when you're uh, done wrong, when you're betrayed, listen, you just hold your tongue and you walk away. Because what you're doing is you're saying, the Lord will handle that. I belong to the Lord. It's not mine to take in my own hands and try to justify myself. Give it to the Lord. And the Lord always will handle it. He will. Sometimes it looks as if people are getting away with something that they've done that's wrong. In the end, they won't get away with it. Nobody gets away with that stuff. Maybe Proverbs 14.4. This is interesting because... David now, this is what we're reading about is David becoming, finally, he's finally becoming the king. <laughs> Seven years in Hebron. By the way, Ishbosheth and, and Abner didn't really try to raise Ishbosheth up uh, until the fifth year of the seven years that David was in Hebron. And so here David is wanted to be king for a long time, knowing he's supposed to be king, but it hadn't happened. 
And so now finally it happens. And when it happens, it's happened in a sordid way. It's not a, it's not a pretty picture. And, I, and again, I love that God doesn't hide that from us to make it look like it's so perfect. It's not perfect. It's, it's ugly. There's mess all over this. There's, it's chaotic. It stinks how David be, came into the kingdom. And, and, but Proverbs 14.4 epitomizes this chapter very well. It says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of, of the ox. <laughs> so you can either have a really clean stable and not have any cows and horses and oxen, um, or you can, and you won't eat, <laughs> or you can put up with the mess of caring for and cleaning up after these animals, but you'll get to eat. And this is what's happening. God's having to work with fallen creatures to carry out His holy, perfect will. That just doesn't even line up right in my mind, you know? A holy, perfect God, you'd think that His ways would produce a holy, perfect outcome, you know, or, or, or process. No, the people He has to do it through are fallen, and their hearts drift from Him like everybody else's heart. And by the way, this guy, David, with this, he's the guy after God's own heart. So you'd think if anybody got away with not having to put up with a mess, it would have been David. Nope. In fact, David caused a lot of the mess, marrying more than one woman. Okay? So God's working with his children, uh, which would be you and I. And that's, you know, you know what it's like to raise kids. I've never, I've never, I've never worked with oxen. Okay, neither probably I would doubt that anybody in the room has. How many of you have worked with, with, with farm animals, cows, larger animals, livestock? Okay, two people, two people out of the whole group. So most of us don't relate to that, that Proverbs 14, 4 passage. But all, many of us have raised kids. And would you not say that it's pretty messy? And uh, it's, it's hard work. It's laborious. Um, but guess what? If you didn't raise kids, we wouldn't get a social security check. <laughs> no, there's a, you, to, to have one, you got to do the other, right? And that's what it's like for God working with us. We're his children and we're a mess, okay? Uh, but, but God still works with us. Thank the Lord for that. He hasn't quit on us, okay? The Old Testament doesn't hide the reality of the relationship that exists between a perfect holy God and fallen fleshly man, but he also doesn't ignore the consequences of our sins. Uh, and many times we suffer greatly because of our own selfishness, our own uh, uh, ulterior motives that get in the way of God's work. So that's the chapter, and I think we'll stop right there. I was going to try to cover chapter 4 uh, uh, and 5, even get into 5 tonight, but I think we'll stop right here. Uh, this is good. Uh, so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love. It's a love unlike anything that we have ever experienced on this earth. It, there's not an ounce of performance based uh, in it. There's not an ounce of if you do for me, I'll do for you. Scratch my back, I'll scratch your. There's not an ounce of anything that is impure. It is a perfect, holy love, your love. And it doesn't come to us because we've done something right. 
and it doesn't cease coming to us because we've done something wrong. So tonight, we're very thankful that you love us, that you sent your son to die for us. And all we have to do is surrender. We simply make you our Savior and Lord, and we come under your authority, under your control. We no longer go out and make a name for ourselves. Now our focus is to make a name for our God. And we no longer carry a title of man. Now we are known as your children. Our identity is secure in you. And we give you praise. And Lord, tonight may we remember this word tomorrow when we get up and we get into our day and the flesh starts to rise up. May we be reminded you belong to the Lord. And may we walk in the love of the Lord among fallen man. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you.